Welcome to the Habits and Hustle Podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. Hi, this is Jen. I just wanted to let you know that we had a few audio issues with this episode, but it's a really great episode with a lot of valuable information. So please listen, and uh, I'm sorry for any inconvenience. Enjoy. So uh, today on Habits and Hustle, we have Lydia Finette, who wrote the, I think, great book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And she and she's one to she's a badass, guys. She um, not only did she write this book in her spare time, but she is the managing director of Christie's Auction House. Is that how we call it? That is it. Yeah. And she's an auctioneer herself. And she has three kids. <laughs> and and and. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's great having you. I mean, I got I I was saying before we even started rolling to you that the way I even like found this book was I was actually at a, a production company in LA, and uh, the guy I work with, one of the uh, one of my partners in some business I do, was going to the bathroom, and I was bored, so I was looking on the on the shelves, and this book just popped out, and I took a screenshot of it and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have this woman on my podcast. So I'm thrilled. Well, listen, <laughs> I'm glad the, that the cover worked. It, the cover <laughs> absolutely worked. And the messages in the book are fantastic. So um, let's just start. Actually, I want to start from like actually you being what you are, because that's a no joke job. I mean, and it's at like the highest level. So how did you even become the managing director and explain your whole product, like how that whole thing happened? Absolutely. So I started working at Christie's when I was 21 years old. I had done an internship the summer before and then came back and did another internship and was hired out of the internship. So I started right after college and in a way it kind of became my family and I learned everything on the ground, which is always my first piece of advice for people starting out. I know in this day and age, everyone's so eager to be at the top of the game, but there's something to be said for really understanding the business that you're in from the bottom all the way up. Because in today's age, if something goes wrong, I can answer it because I promise I've been through it after 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like everyone now is about like hacks, right? Shortcuts mm-hmm. of how to get to, you know, wherever they want to get. But the reality is I feel like it's in the process that mm-hmm. people really kind of get to be at their A game, right? To understand everything from like the beginning to like every little nuance of how it happens. Yeah. And that's so much about this book. I mean, I wrote the book as a journey. Why did I learn how to become the most powerful woman in the room as you? I learned it because of the skills that I've learned over 20 years. Some of them great, some of them really painful to go through, but all of them were stepping stones to being confident and feeling like I have a voice that deserves to be heard. And I believe it now as much as I believe it when I wrote the book. No, that's amazing. So let's get to it then. So your first thing that I saw that you you tell women, or actually anybody really, is the strike method. Yes, the strike method. So For those of you who don't know, I am the lead charity auctioneer for Christie's Auction House, which is very different than art auctioneering. I don't go into a room with a bunch of people in a well-lit sort of Yeah, explain the difference, because I have that down. I want you to tell people the difference between an art auctioneer and a benefit, which is what you do, which is a benefit auctioneer. Because until I read your book, I had no idea that there was even a difference. I know, and I think most people, I mean, Christie's and the world that I operate in, in my job is so, it's so 
high level that most people probably see in a New York Times or a CNN headline about the fact that Christie's sold something for $400 million. Right. And it's so out of the the sort of norm for 99.9% of the world that it's almost like a headline and that's it. So Christie's sells art at every level, high to low, things for the same price that you would buy them at Pottery Barn, all the way up to hundreds of millions of dollars. People go to art auctions knowing what they're going to buy. Right. So they sit in an auditorium or a, a, what we call a sale room uh, with chairs perfectly lined up watching an auctioneer. And I think a lot of times if you've seen an auctioneer, you would think of something you've seen in a movie. So it's sort of an elegant British gentleman who's standing up there in black tie taking an auction. That's what we say in the auction world, taking an auction. I'm a charity auctioneer, which means that I go in at night to a crowded cocktail party or a seated black tie dinner where people have been drinking for usually an hour or two, sometimes three hours. And I get on stage and I have to sell something that a lot of times people don't even know that there's an auction. The auction is a bunch of things that people have put together to raise money for a charity. So I get on stage and, and auction off a vacation home that somebody has donated to the pet, to the art, to, excuse me, to the charity auction. Or I say in the book, a puppy that nobody wants that they put on stage at 11 o'clock at night and say, okay, go sell that and make money for the charity. So it's kind of a crazy, it's kind of a crazy sort of skill that you start out just, they toss you on stage and you just sort of have to sell whatever you can. And you do whatever you can to get the attention of the crowd. So that's really the difference. I say in an art auction, you're sort of, people go in knowing that they're there to buy wow, something. Yeah. In a charity auction, it's all about the person on stage who's the auctioneer who has to figure out how to get the audience to watch and then to really want what they're selling. So before we even get into what the actual strike method is, mm -hmm. uh, I want to just add a, my own curiosity. What was the most expensive? I know you said this in the book too. Everyone always asks you this, but what is the most expensive thing that you've auctioned off? So again, I'm not an art auctioneer. I'm a charity auctioneer. Right. So I've sold the most expensive thing that I have ever sold was a suite at the Super Bowl in the new um, arena in San Francisco for, I think we sold it for 1.25 million for 20 people. You'd go on the field and then you'd go up to the suite and watch the Super Bowl game. And we sold it. And then a fun charity auctioneering trick is sometimes they give you two to sell and so you get the crowd, the sort of the final bidders to bid as much as they possibly can. And you say, going once, going twice, and then you pause and say to the underbidder, the person who isn't going to win it, let me just ask you something. If I had one more to sell, would you be interested? And usually they're on the spot in front of hundreds of people. So they ultimately say yes. So we sold it twice. Oh, for, I think it was 1.2 million. Which that's is amazing. Really fun because then you make you know, $2.4 million for charity on the spot, which is incredible. That's incredible. Oh my God. Okay. And also in your book, I saw that you sold stuff like a singing lesson with Lady Gaga. Uh -huh. Dance lessons with Madonna. Yeah, dance lessons. So how much does that stuff go for? How much does a singing lesson for, with her? Well, that's the thing about a charity auction. You never know, but things like that usually sell for sort of anywhere from 50000 to upwards of $100,000. So that one, how much did that one go for? for? The dance lesson for Madonna went for 70000 I can't remember what the singing lesson with Lady Gaga went for, but probably somewhere in the same ballpark. How about the George Clooney lunch or dinner or something that I, I saw? That was around 75000 80000 All right. It it depends. It really depends on the audience. I can sell things in two different crowds where, you know, a dinner at the hottest restaurant in town in one crowd can go for $4,000. And again, these are New York City prices. So understand yeah. <laughs> that this goes for charity. This is not, I understand that this is not mainstream, but then in a different crowd that might go for $20,000 right. because people want to give. It's just, if they're having fun and they have the money, sometimes the sky is really the limit. But that's why you have to be even you got to be excellent at your job mm -hmm. to kind of get as much money out of the people and, and kind of command the attention, yes. which is a great segue in back to the strike method of how to be the most powerful woman 
in the room. <laughs> okay, so tell us, what is it? What is a strike method? So when I was writing the book, the question I get the most after, can you talk quickly and what, what is the most expensive thing you've ever sold, which is the <laughs> two questions I always get, um, people always say to me, how did you do that? Because you start at an event sitting down having dinner and you know I'll be sitting talking to someone and then five minutes later I'm on stage in front of a thousand people commanding an audience and raising millions of dollars. Like how does that transition happen? And as an auctioneer, one thing that you're given almost immediately is a gavel. Some people use it, some people don't. I use it liberally and it's almost become, I like to say it's like my feather, like my Dumbo feather. I need it now to get on stage uh -huh. in a way. So when I'm backstage, I'm sort of Lydia, I'm feeling the adrenaline coming in, I'm getting a little nervous. And then I go out on stage, I spread my notes on the podium and I slam the gavel down three times. So if you see me take an auction anywhere in the world, I will do that every single time. And if I forget my gavel, I'll bring a salt shaker from the table or you know, a, like a gift bag moisturizer that I've found, but something that makes me feel like I'm immediately in charge. And so I say in the book, I've realized that every time I have a difficult conversation, if I am going in for a big pitch, I have a moment where I stop and I think about what I'm going to, excuse me, what I'm going to say when I get there. So I'm not leaving anything to chance. So when I get on stage, I slam the gavel down. And the first thing I say is, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm here from Christie's Auction House to conduct a very short live auction every single time. And then I'll throw in a joke. But every single time, every single stage that I go on in the world, I know exactly what I'm going to say. So I don't feel nervous. I never feel like I'm unnerved. And that gavel for me is my strike method. If I'm going into a meeting, I really pause. I give myself a moment for transition. And then I move into that opening line. And I say that that's really what the strike method is. If you are going into something where you feel uncomfortable, I know we were talking mm -hmm. earlier about the fact that you have a TED talk coming up. Mm -hmm. It's really, <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to make you feel nervous. <laughs> the agita now is starting to erupt again. Yes, okay. But to give yourself a moment to pause and to think through what your first sentence is going to be. And also just to give yourself a moment to sort of reflect and be grounded about the fact that you're about to do something where you're confronting something that may not make you feel comfortable and be okay with that. And that's really for me what the strike method is. It's about not sort of throwing caution to the wind and feeling completely unsettled, but rather whatever it is, it could be a movement. I have a friend who says she always digs her nails into her hands to sort of put her in the moment. I have friends who are sports or athletes who right. do different things right before they go out for a game. But just finding that moment of pause before you move in so you feel like you're coming in from a point of strength. Of confidence. And then the what's the second thing? I think I saw it was like something about authenticity, right? Like being Sell yourself. Sell as yourself, yeah. yes. And I talk about this in the book, you know, at the very beginning of this podcast, I was talking about how if you, if you think about what an auctioneer might look like, I definitely do not come to mind. No. And I certainly didn't come to mind when I was 24 years old, which is when I started taking auctions. So. I mean, I first walked into an auction and I swear to God, the look of the people in front of me were like, where's the auctioneer? What are you doing here? Are you the, the auctioneer's helper? These were actually questions that people asked me. Right. Um, and I would sort of say, no, I, I'm the auctioneer. And then I think when they realized that I was going to be the auctioneer, they kind of were like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. Right. How could this woman command a room? And so because I felt what they were feeling, I immediately did what I thought I should do, which was acted like the guys that I had trained with who were all... 15 to 20 years older than me. They were all men and half of them were British. Right. So I sort of affected a British accent. I became very sort of formal and stiff because that's the way I trained as an, uh, sort of an, as an art auctioneer. And there was one night I was very sick and I still had to take the auction. It was a Saturday night. No one else was available. And I went in to take the auction and I didn't have 
the adrenaline boost to get me into that pretending that I was an older British gentleman. So I got up on stage and the first thing that happened was I saw a woman seated in front of me who had been seated next to me at a lunch when the guy that I thought I was going to marry broke, broke up with me. I talked about, yeah, I talk about that in the book, right? And it was so funny because she'd been so kind. I mean, I think we started with napkins. I was crying so hard by the end. I think she was using sort of the bottom of the tablecloth because the tears were coming <laughs> so quickly. And, and I just, instead of doing what I would have done, which was moving into that very formal, stiff, art auction, which we, which is what you want when someone's selling a Picasso. Right. Um, I looked at her and I started the lot by saying something like lot number one, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be a cocktail reception and a dinner at this woman's home. You will have a wonderful time looking at her art collection. And then I added the part that was authentic to me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you, if you are currently in therapy, I can tell you Jennifer is the woman to be with. I sat next to her after a breakup and she nursed me back to health over one lunch. So save your money, bid on this lot, and some kind of joke <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And all of a sudden, the fact that I was sort of a 20-year-old woman on stage seemed a little funny. I was kind of poking fun at the fact that I was on stage, I had been broken up with. I mean, who in the audience couldn't relate to that on some level? And people kind of stopped talking and looked at the stage. And for years, they just sort of continued eating and not really paid attention during the auction. Right. And so I realized that that was actually the funny part. And we were talking too about, you know, when I was still taking auctions yeah. during three pregnancies. I mean, I had to say it immediately when I was on stage because it was funny. Right. And but, also it's like, you have to like also, it's, it's obvious, right? So it's like pointing at the pink elephant in the room. Exactly. I always find that I don't understand why. I mean, people always say when they see somebody who is, is, is very successful in any, in any walk of life, they try to emulate that person. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you there's only one, everyone is unique to them. Exactly. And if, if I think if there's one thing that I always tell people, it's like, just be yourself yeah. because whatever you have, you have a super, you have a superpower inside you. You mm -hmm. have to let that shine. Yes. And people don't, I mean, I, if people did that more regularly, I think that they would be surprised at like how much more they level up their lives. Absolutely. You know, people are afraid to be themselves. Well, I think what you see, I mean, when I sit at th these events, these galas year after year, I mean, I go to 50 to 100 galas Gosh. a year. God. I can watch the people who are good public speakers. Right. And the difference between a good public speaker and an uncomfortable public speaker is that the good public speaker feels comfortable in their skin. Yeah. And they've realized that being their authentic self makes the, the audience feel at ease and therefore they feel at ease. Absolutely. Well, we, you talk about, I mean, that's another one of your points that, so in like, so in, in Lydia's book, there's a, <laughs> there's a bunch of different points and then you expand upon them of what makes you the most powerful person in mm -hmm. the room. And that's why you are, you know, who you are, but public speaking is another one of those things. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you a hundred percent. I think it's when I was reading that, that's the one that I was saying earlier to mm -hmm. you. I was like, Oh my God, I have to read this chapter like five times <laughs> for what I have to do pretty Good soon. Timing. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's great timing. And I think public speaking is one of those, it's like people rather, like rather die, yeah. they say, than <laughs> actually public speak. I know. And I think it's a great way to gain confidence, Absolutely. right? And the issue is someone like you and your job, right? You're kind of forced to, you're kind of forced to be doing that, right? Mm -hmm. You're on stage constantly. So you get the practice, Yes. but the majority of people, including me, you know, don't have that kind of, that they don't have that kind of platform to be just yapping in front of people constantly for that practice. Mm -hmm. So how do you suggest people like get practice? How do they get better at it? Because mm -hmm. 
if you're not even speaking like that, people are speaking, like you said, if you ever, you could be doing presentations, you mm -hmm. could be doing a, a sales meeting, whatever it is, having that, having that um, ability to speak well in front of audiences, I think really behooves people. Absolutely. And so, I, I definitely think that people often sort of say, well, you know, you're on stage. I was like, I choose to be on stage. Right. I mean, when I first started taking charity auctions, it's a volunteer service provided by Christie's. So I'm getting on stage and I can't even tell you because I train the charity auctioneers how many people stop taking them after five or six. They, they just say to me, this is absolutely brutal. I don't know why anyone would ever do this. Right. People don't pay attention. They talk throughout. And I, you know, yeah. That's but were you naturally good at, to start? Already. No, I think I was, I was fine on, I was fine trying it, but right. I think I was very mediocre at the beginning. You know, people say, they're like, you're so effortless on stage. I have been doing this for right. 16 years. I, I took a hundred auctions a year when I was in my twenties, a hundred, I would take two or three a night. Right. So, and so practice, practice, practice and experience makes it look effortless now. And I would right. start by even if I had, um, if I had an auction that evening, I would get my fellow interns in the room mm. and I would practice the lots on them. I would practice in front of the mirror. Even now, before I go on stage, if I go to the bathroom a couple minutes before I, I'm sort of supposed to be backstage and I'll run over, you know how I was saying, I start mm -hmm. off with good evening, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Lydia Finette. And then I would throw in a joke. I always practice that joke in a mirror, even if it's, you know, just like a, a so mirror So it's preparation and practice. Absolutely. So don't just, people don't just go and wing it. I think people get more, that's what I'm noticing too, just with my own thing I was telling you, is knowing what you're going to say and prepare. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and then practice that preparation over mm -hmm. and over again. But then don't you people come off, if you, if you practice so much, my fear would be that it would come across robotic, right? Because like, if you memorize it mm -hmm. and I you lose track of what the memory, whatever, where you are, then it's really, you get a lot of like nervousness because like, oh shit, where am I? You know, where am I? Yeah. Like, uh-oh, I was on the fourth sentence. I missed a paragraph yeah. and that's awkward. But here's the greatest thing about public speaking that no one ever tells you. Okay. Nobody knows what you're going to say. Right. You're the only person who knows that you've missed the fourth paragraph. So just remember, if you get a little off, off track, I always say, instead of memorizing, think of the, pre think of the presentation or the public speaking moment the as theme. the theme yeah. and give yourself 10 touch points over the course of that theme. So even if you get a little off track, you can sort of thread back to that touch point. Right. So, you know, you have a 10 minute speech. You should be making one point every single minute. What is that point? And then Practice it every single day when you're walking down the street. Get your group, get a group of friends together. Be like, I'll buy two bottles of wine. I need you guys for an hour. I'm going to just speak through this because sometimes talking in front of other people, especially people that you know, which mm -hmm. is often more nerve wracking yeah. because you actually care what they think perhaps. Um, I think a lot of times just getting people in a room so that you have to talk it out helps you think through what you're going to say. And a lot of times they have feedback. My friend Mary is great. Whenever I have a speech, I call her. Can I sit on the couch with you for an hour? just talk through this. And as I'm talking, she's like, what about this point? What about this? Right. Point? That's like, that's a good point yeah. to use your network around you. Absolutely. Which brings me to the next one, which I, this is the one that I really, I, I love and I agree with wholeheartedly is the networking one. Network or die. Yeah. Network <laughs> or die. My dad's, my yeah. dad's catchphrase. Yeah. It's, it, but it's, it's the absolute truth. Yeah. I think of, of, of all these points where we were talking about of how to be the most powerful person in the room and or what really takes you to the next level. It's all this stuff, it's authenticity, mm -hmm. it's preparation, it's public speaking, it's this, it's 
But this networking one really is, I think, everything. It's free. Yeah, it's free. First of all, it's free. (laughs) Absolutely. And it pushes you to, it makes you push yourself out of your comfort zone, especially if you're not a natural extrovert. Right. So you need other people. And that's where real opportunities come. I always mm-hmm. say that in a, in, a, in a nice way, like everybody is a conduit to somebody else. Absolutely. You know, and if you, if you, I think if you really kind of nurture that one element, mm-hmm. that's really something that makes it very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I will say too, my father, who I reference in the book, yeah. is the sort of king of networking. One thing that I've always witnessed in my life, my dad will help someone who he barely knows. Mm-hmm. He will make an introduction to anybody for no reason, not to benefit himself, just to, to literally right. introduce people. And that comes back in, in a way tenfold because people never forget him. And they always think of him as a stepping stone on their way to something that happened. Absolutely. I, I agree with your dad because you have to also give without expectation. Yeah. Right. And that's when the, that's becomes, I know it sounds cliche, but that becomes the biggest reward. Absolutely. So why don't we talk about, give, give us your three tips on how to be a really good networker. So starting, I mean, I, I always think about networking when I'm first entering the job. Right. And I actually have a great example because there's a young woman who contacted me out of the blue to talk about, she'd read the book and she wanted to talk about getting an internship at Christie's. Right. And she followed up a number of times because I was on book tour, so I wasn't getting back with my usual frequency on email. And, you know, every time she did, I said, listen, now is not a good time, but let's talk in two weeks. So two weeks later, I would get another email from her. And then finally we got on the phone. We had a long conversation about everything. Um, Within the book, she told me all about her job. She told me exactly what she needed my help doing in terms of the internship at Christie's. Mm -hmm. And I was like, look, I I don't know you, but you clearly are very motivated. I would be happy to red flag your resume for our HR department just so they know that someone has met you and and can sort of say that you you are all of these things that you talk about in your resume. I ran into her at a gallery opening I literally had no reason to be there. I didn't even know that she was going to be there. And she came right up and introduced herself. And within five minutes, I had made an introduction to the head of the gallery for her because I've recognized her to be Mm -hmm. a great networker, a total self-starter. And that's the kind of people that you want surrounding yourself in your network and to help move forward as well. So what would be the first tip then? So my first tip would be do not afraid to reach out and ask for help to anyone at any level and really get them invested in your career. Right. So not being afraid. Don't be afraid. But also, remember, get someone invested in your career. Don't just reach out once and then think, oh, well, they didn't get back to me. Follow up and get yourself in front of them and make sure that you're known and that they know who you are. So be persistent. Be persistent. So that's absolutely. your tip one. And also get them invested in your career. And get them in, and. and- is that number one or number two? Invest it's a combination of one. Okay, so investment, find someone who's invested in your career yeah. and persistency is number one for tip one for networking. Yes. Okay, what's, what's number two? So reach out to the network as we've been talking mm-hmm. about. Reach out to your network and ask them to extend their network to you. Right. So again, something that I'll often just say to someone who reaches out to me, go through my LinkedIn. I accept everyone on LinkedIn. This is true. I will accept anyone on LinkedIn. So if you want me to reach out on behalf of you, to someone in my LinkedIn network, I'm happy to do it. Because if I didn't reach out to them, they reached out to me. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-way street, and I'm happy to introduce. Right. So you can see who your that contact is connected to mm-hmm. to make an introduction. So then use so you're saying, you're saying use LinkedIn, use Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I saw, which I thought was a great one, is like an alumni group. If yes. you come from a place where you have an alumni, 
utilize that alumni. Mm -hmm. And middle school all the way up. Absolutely. This isn't just college. Right. So like kind of think, you know, kind of think outside your little box of who you have in front of you, your purview. So think really grand, big scope. Yeah. All right. So and then follow up with them and then follow up with them. If you reach out and ask for someone's time, follow up with them and let them know what you were doing over the course of your career. Perfect. Number three, introduce yourself to everyone. Just, just because you're sitting on a plane doesn't mean that you have to be by yourself. Meet the people on either side of you. I've made incredible contacts on airplanes that I still keep in touch with to this day. Don't close yourself off in a box. I know everybody puts on earbuds mm -hmm. and sort of blocks out the world. But if there's someone who's willing to talk to you, speak to them for five minutes. You never know where that path might lead. Absolutely. That's what I, that's what I always say. I mean, the, my, my best my best opportunities have come from accidents, mm -hmm. literally. I mean, yeah. I literally have a column in Forbes for the last, what, five years mm -hmm. because some person emailed me by accident who was, oh, trying to, was trying to email another Jennifer Cohen. And I was like, this guy looks interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to find out more about him. And lo and behold, his friend was an editor at Forbes. That's amazing. Yeah. So just, so, yeah, so I am a big believer in this. I'm telling you, like, people always focus on, like, things that look very obvious in mm -hmm. front of them. Like, oh, I'm going to get this, this opportunity or this job based on this. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's always, it's like the little things that always make a massive difference. Yeah. on a plane, yep. at a grocery store, at the gym. Mm -hmm. Like people that also you never would think of talking to yeah. become your best, best resources. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, this is one I can, I can talk all day on. But, and and, <laughs> and I'm sure these guys behind me can agree, <laughs> can attest to that one. But, um, and also I would say, and this is not a tip, but I talk yeah. about this a lot in the last, the last chapter of the book, is if you find that your network is not growing or you don't feel like it's growing, be a self-starter start a networking breakfast. And I don't mean a networking Absolutely. breakfast where, you know, everybody comes and talks about their job. Get to know people on a human level because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's nice to sit at a cocktail party and introduce yourself and find out that X works at this job and X works at this job. But get five people together for a cup of coffee and tell everyone to bring one person that the other person at the table doesn't know. Exactly. And then just have a moment where you all sit around and just talk. Let Give everyone the, the floor for a couple of minutes. It allows them to, to also practice public speaking. Um, to tell them what's going on in their life. You know, some, someone might have a job, someone might be a stay-at-home mom, someone may be just starting out. Mm -hmm. And all Excellent. of these things will help you grow your network because then their network becomes a part of your network. Absolutely. And then I also wanted to add um, that know who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. The worst thing in the world, and I know that you wrote this and I talk about this a ton too, is when people want to have information sessions or they have me on that, you know, I have an interview with them mm -hmm. and they know nothing about my background. Oh. They know nothing about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. It's like a joke. I'm like, why did you even bother? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. first of all, it's insulting. Yeah. And it's like, I, that just is a, to me, a red flag, never to talk to that person again. Like yeah. do your homework. Do your homework. Well, I think this really comes to younger groups of women and men who are coming in for informational interviews. I always say, like, spend some time on Google, figure out what I do in my job, figure out a little bit about Christie's, come in with a list of five to 10 questions right. that you can ask that you're actually interested in, not things that you've printed off, you know, because you think that some, I would be impressed by that, but come in and ask me questions that interest you. Right. Why are you here? What makes you interested in the art world? Are you here because someone told you you should be here? Or is this something that interests you? But then also follow up and tell me something interesting about yourself. 
Because as you can imagine, in any, in any role in a senior leading, excuse me, as any role as a senior leader would tell you in any role, a lot of times you just get a lot of people who are constantly asking to meet you or to have coffee with you, which I think is super exciting. So I'm always happy to do it. But don't just become sort of a faceless person who comes in the door. I had a girl recently who came in. Mm -hmm. She was like, I heard that you like Diet Coke and chocolate. So I have not forgotten her and nor will I ever. Right, exactly. She arrived with a can of Diet Coke and a box of chocolates. Absolutely. And I, I totally... I. I, I like that girl already. Yeah, come I, back anytime. Anytime, exactly. <laughs> My I, officer will never be close Absolutely. <laughs> More from our guest, but first a quick word from our sponsor. There's a lot of confusion around CBD nowadays, but not all CBD is created equally. Adding hemp fusion CBD to your daily routine adds up to a lot of benefits. Unlike other CBD brands who offer just CBD, hemp fusion is CBD plus omegas plus terpenes to help you feel 100%. They do this because CBD works best for your body when it's combined with these other nutrients. This is available both online and at natural product retailers near you. And Hemp Fusion ships anywhere in the U.S. So please use promo code HABITS for 20% off your first order and free shipping at hempfusion.com. That's promo code HABITS. Get Hemp Fusion, and they ship anywhere in the U.S. for free when you use that 20% code HABITS. And the other thing I would like to add, and I, again, I saw this in your book that you also tend to agree, is that don't, don't think just because um, you, can, you can only network with people higher than you. Okay. I, you have, I think that people are usually don't, they, they're not, they're not, see, they're not forethinking the future. Mm -hmm. The people who are interns or uh, entry level people, and if they're good, they're going to rise. Like mm -hmm. what, you know, like water finds its level or like the cream rises to the top. Yeah. Become friendly with those people because those people could be your boss in like five years. Absolutely. My, some of the interns that I had at Christie's, you know, when I first started is when I was running the events department. I mean, these women are powerhouses. And I see them. I mean, I've lived in New York for 20 years, so I see right. them out all the time. Absolutely. Um, it's so exciting to see them really, you know, sort of fulfill their goals and really rise to the top. But it's also funny because in their minds, they're still my interns. Right, right, right. No, exactly. <laughs> they're always like, well, she was my boss 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, no, it's amazing because people, do, people don't sometimes want to have that like foresight. Yeah. And they forget that it's those quote unquote, little people that become the badasses and bosses yeah. later on. And, and very soon you become irrelevant. Yes. Right. It's true. It's a hundred percent true. So that's good. So let's keep on going. So, sure. so far, um, we have the strike method, mm -hmm. networking, public speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, we touched upon, a, well, I mean, those are the 50 that we touched upon. Did I forget one so far that we've, we've done? No. Well, what do you want to, what, let's add some, some other ones that you think are super important to become the most powerful person in the room. So one chapter that I talk about in the book is you are what you negotiate. Oh, yes. Because I think that this is that something here. that women constantly undervalue themselves. And so this is something I really wanted to address. I think society now talks about it a lot more. But I went through this time 10 years into my career where I realized that I was making a third of what I should be right. making in my role. And because, and we talked about this, yeah. I've worked for the same company for 20 years. I 
love my company. Which is so shocking in today's time. People <laughs> leave after like two years. I know. And it's amazing. Well, like I've been here five months and I feel like I've given it my all. I'm like maybe you should try. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, stick pause. it through a couple yeah, months just, more. Just yeah. Pause. Let's see if we can make it a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of value in being in a place for a long time because yeah. frankly, you build in a lot of sweat equity. People know your people know your value and people know what you can do. So with the negotiating. I had been in my company for 10 years and I realized that I was making through a series of different events, a third of what I should be making on the open market. And because I love my company so much, and I talk about this in the book, they were family to me and a family takes care of the people who work for it. Right. But a business is a business is a business. And you have to remember that you are the only person who will ask for what you deserve. Well, absolutely. I also, I saw that part and I liked it because first of all, what you said also was you're only going to get as much as you ask for. Absolutely. No one's going to pay you more. If you ask for, this is just a number, 5,000, you're going to get 5,000. Oh, if you're lucky. No one's going to say, oh, let me give you 10. <laughs> no. You know, like no one's going to give you more than yeah. you want, you know, like, and if you say if they don't cringe when you say the number, yeah. you went too low. Yeah. I hate that feeling. Oh my God. It happens to me so many times in my life. I know. The win- I, I didn't say it. it was my friend, Gemma. I just pasted oh. these in the book and she said, it's the greatest line in the book. Make them win. Yeah. Make them win. <laughs> I know I saw that, but it's so true. Cause yeah. I think women especially are so afraid to ask for what they're, what yeah. they think they're worth. So they like take whatever is like handed to them. Yeah. I First, hear it all the time from women. Oh, all I'm the so time. lucky to have a job. I'm so lucky to work here. And I, I have two brothers and I, I just had this sort of running joke with one of my brothers. I've never heard you skip out of the door going to work saying, I'm so lucky to work here, you know, where they right. just grind me for 80 hours. <laughs> I've never heard those words come out of his mouth. No. I've heard other words come out of his mouth, but, um, sure. and so I say that, you know, to the women I work with, I'm like, even if I, even if you know that I'm going to say no, just come and ask me, I'm happy. It's better for you to hear the word no. Cause then you won't be scared of it. Absolutely. And also I think more than people, women for me anyway, who, they're not like, I'm so lucky. They're scared. It's they're the scared. fear based. They're yeah. like, I'm scared to ask for what I want because then X what if will I don't happen. get it not just I, or like what if they fire me because they think I'm being too presumptuous or what if, or, what if they think I'm pushy I'm pushy because we always get the feeling like if you're if you're a strong woman it comes across as being pushy mm-hmm. if you or assertive or bitchy but like why can't why why can't you be why can't you be happy with who you are and be confident that you deserve more? It's like, this is like an ongoing struggle, Absolutely. I feel. But I felt like the, the important part and where we are now in our culture and the, in the cultural conversation, it's about showing people what that looks like. Yeah. And I really, you know, I was 30 years old and I was just as scared as anybody out there going into the office to right. ask for what I knew I was supposed to be getting. Um, and I loved my boss and I didn't want him to be upset with me and I didn't want him to to get angry or any of those things. But ultimately I also knew that I was being dramatically underpaid. And you know, I say in the book, I was in an apartment that I was, I mean, this is New York, but I was splitting a one bedroom down a wall with a roommate. I was 30 years old. I'd been working in a company for 10 years and I found out a friend of mine was about to buy an apartment. And I was just like, wait, we're not supposed to be making this much money. And she had just had a very different upbringing where her father had been very in her face about being financially responsible and being financially savvy and asking for what you deserve. And even though my parents had told me that, I feel like society didn't shore up with those lessons. And certainly where I worked with, the the people I worked with certainly didn't believe that or make me feel like that. So it was kind of time to put my 
It's time to really put my money where my mouth was. Do you have, is it, uh, I don't, it, for your company, for Christie's, is there a lot of women who work there? Is it oh, yeah. I mean, 70% women, I think. And oh, it's wow. Heavily women. But, and, and I think the company has done an incredible job of opening this conversation because the women all work in the, the entry-level jobs. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, in the past year, our chief marketing officer is now a woman. Our president is now a woman. Like, the company is making changes, discernible changes for the people who are younger. So there is a place for them to see. Because ultimately, most women just left at some point because, right. you know, they would have children and they felt like the maternity, the maternity leave policy wasn't strong enough to make them come back or they just didn't see a place that they could go. And so, you know, I have, I've had three children in my job. And I've nursed throughout. I nursed my youngest one until she was 18 months old. And I just felt like it was very important that I was very transparent for the women on my team about what it takes to get on a plane and pump an entire way to California when you're having to go into the bathroom oh, on a plane so they understand. God, but people know it's possible. You know, it's, it, you know I know yeah. it's difficult. It is not fun, but it is possible. So you don't have to not, you don't have to stop nursing, you don't have to stop doing these things if you don't want to. And let me show you because I was able to do it. And here are some hacks mm -hmm. as to how to do it. And that's what we as women should be doing for one another. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I have brothers, I have a great husband, I have tons of guy friends, but they can't, they can't relate on that level. Right. And so it's, it's up to us as senior women to come across and say, listen, if you're having a baby come into my office. Let me tell you what I can about you know, everything I know about having done this, let me help you. Right, right, right. I think though, what you were saying before though, about knowing your finances, understanding money mm -hmm. is a big point for people and women. Cause like, people are very uncomfortable just around that whole topic. Yes. You know, I mean, I get, people always look at me very strangely because I always ask how much everything is and how much people even make because mm -hmm. I like to, have, I like to have a tap on the marketplace of what mm -hmm. everything is. Just keeps me much more like in the know. Sure. Right. Um, okay, that's a great one, though. I really like that one. And then is there any, let's pick one more that we can talk about. I want to give away the whole entire book. <laughs> so, I mean, just get one more. I mean, I, my favorite, well, I have a, a couple of chapters that are my favorite chapter, but I also love the one where I talk about technology and mm. selling with technology. Okay, that's a good one. To, yeah. Because I do think it is one, one thing that I have noticed, certainly as an auctioneer, where you get on stage and for a while they tried to make everybody use technological mm -hmm. devices to bid and just losing the connectivity with the audience was something that became apparent so quickly. Right. And so because I sell in my full-time job at Christie's, I say to my, to my team, I'm like, whenever possible, try to meet someone once face-to-face, -face. even if it's the first meeting or when you get on a call, don't just jump into a sales pitch and stop listening and stop sort mm -hmm. of people always make the mistake of not listening first in sales. It should be listening first and then whatever you're saying needs to align with what the person's objectives are. Right, but that's not even just for sales. I mean, we can took, we could do a whole other podcast on the art of selling because yeah. of what the high level mm -hmm. of what you sell to, for sure. Yeah. Um, but that, the listening piece is with anything that you want to have success with. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I agree with that 100%. But you're, is your point more that people use technology that they're not able to socialize as, as well? Or no, my your point, point is really, is, you have to find, you have to find the place where these two intersect. Intersect, right. And don't just, you know, don't just lob a hundred emails towards someone when you're trying to get their attention. No. You still have to bring personality into right. the sales. Right, making the connection. That's, exactly. But I think that would fall under networking. Too as yeah. well. There's a lot that kind of like they're basically kind of 
they're dovetail each other here, yeah, right? Exactly. No, but so that's interesting. So I was going to talk to you about that, the artist selling, because that's my, the name of my next book. I, I told, to you. I told Lydia that her, that her next book should be called The Artist Selling, <laughs> because this book, because even though this title could have been The Artist Selling, yeah. because of I was impressed by the level of sales that you're doing, you're working within, yeah. because you do all these strategic partnerships. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us? How, because people think that, like, when they think of a salesperson, mm -hmm. a lot of times they think like loud and very gregarious, yeah. and you have to do this, and like, but I, you're obviously not that way, <laughs> right? At all. Are there Except sometimes on stage? Maybe sometimes <laughs> on stage. But what are some other tips about that? Because I think you have to sell in every aspect of your life. You've got mm -hmm. to sell personally, mm -hmm. yourself, um, when for relationships, for professional stuff products it could be it could be anything it's not just like a transaction between here i want to buy a loaf of bread yeah so on a high level mm -hmm. and then you can break it down give us some great tips of how to be such a successful salesperson sales is a conversation and again going back to what i said before that is the biggest mistake that i see in sales people try to come at sales with their own objectives and what they are selling mm -hmm. period end of sentence whether that be this is who I am, take it or leave it. Whether it be this is the product that I'm selling, take it or leave it. Sales is a two-way street. So what I say whenever I'm walking into any kind of sale, whether that be on the small level where I'm sitting face-to-face -face with one person, tell me a little bit about your business before we even start this conversation. I'd love to hear what you're up to, what your objectives are, and how you started. So starting there with someone, right? So you take, so you make the other person have like start the conversation always, and and you listen to what their needs are. Yeah, and right. even on when I get on stage, a lot of times if I'm unfamiliar with an audience, mm -hmm. I'll say to the audience, "Ladies and gentlemen, this is our first time together. So why doesn't someone here start out the bidding? You can start wherever you'd like, and then when you raise your hand to start the bidding, I say, "Ma'am, what is your name?" And you say, "Jennifer." Mm -hmm. And so for the rest of the evening, Jennifer becomes my best friend. Right. And you can start it wherever you want and the entire audience is comfortable because they feel like I'm listening to what they want. And so it's the same thing, small to large. What you're doing in any type of sales is listening first. And then once you have the information from the person sitting in front of you, your job is to figure out what, whatever you are selling, whether it be yourself in an interview, mm -hmm. a product that you've created, a product that you're selling on behalf of someone else. How does what I'm selling fit into what you need and what you are doing right now. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the conversation. And if what I'm selling doesn't work with what you want at that point, I don't shut that conversation down. I talk to them about the fact that this is an open conversation and we'll keep going. So maybe what I'm selling right now doesn't work for you. Why don't we touch base again in a month and we'll see how your business is progressing. And maybe at that point, this could be something that's of more interest to you. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing on stage. If I have an underbidder, one thing I never do is shut down my underbidder. If this person on my right is going to win, but you're the person who's underbid him to the point where he's going to win and you're going to lose, I say to you, going once, I'm looking around the room, going twice, ma'am, the good news is I know you have $5,000 burning a hole in your pocket, so I'll be back to you later, sold to you. Again, it's just part of an ongoing conversation. An ongoing conversation. And it's also important because women are always scared of rejection. So I say to people, think of it not as rejection, but as pushing the conversation to a later date. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you don't want this jewelry that I'm selling right now? Let's talk again in five months when we're closer to your birthday. We'll figure out if maybe that's when you need it. And then it doesn't feel like a rejection. 
It just feels like a part of an ongoing conversation. See, I think you should teach a course. Not to get to a, I, mean, I want to be your business Here consultant. No, because I think that, but it's also not just what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. Yeah. I think all it's, it's a combination, right? Because you can give people these tactile things, like it's a conversation, mm -hmm. you listen, you find out what they need, but it's the way you kind of put it out there in a, in a it's a, the way you do it, it's like, it's not seductive, but it's persuasive. It's persuasive, <laughs> but subtle. Yeah. Well, right? it, it's funny because a woman said to me at a Q&A after when I was on my book tour, she said, you know what I love the most about your book is that when, when people say power and when women historically mm -hmm. have thought of power, right. you think of the, the, you know, women dressing up in power suits and she's like, nothing about you feels that way. And I said, no, because power to me is putting on a cocktail dress and sparkly earrings and big heels and getting on stage and embracing the feminine side of my personality, because that's what makes me an effective salesperson. And that's why this book is hot pink, because I think power and femininity are totally interjected, interjected, wrong word, um, intersected. intersected. Yes. And I just feel like we so often think that we have to be hard charging when in fact, that may not be who we are. So right. why not embrace that part of our personality and make that part of our sales strategy? Again, it, it, that's what basically everything does dove, dovetail here because again, you're saying being authentic to who you are, not trying to be what you think you have to be or emulate some kind of caricature of what you think is gonna make you successful is what you're basically saying. Yep. Like if you are, you don't have to be this like hard charging big alpha male, No, you can do it. Because by the way, you're a, not, and I, you never will be. Right, you know? but there are women, I will say this, that are very alpha. Like yeah. we're more alpha than the men. But you know, again, I'm gonna leave another anecdote here. When I was, mm -hmm. a, when my first job ever, ever, I was at the Toronto Raptors mm -hmm. and uh, in the sales, I was like a 19 or 20, it was a, a big deal. Mm -hmm. And the best salesperson in the group, there's all guys and there was me and there's a one other girl. Um, and she's been there, she was there longer than me. She was, she outsold the men by 10. Yeah. And she was this quiet, sweet girl. But the, her, her whole approach was so, again, persuasive and subtle and the opposite of what you would think. She crushed. So like, I think it's just about figuring out who you are mm -hmm. and then making that, again, making your authenticity shine. Yeah, agreed. Right? Absolutely. But you should because other, give us some other tactics that you can use with your personality. Give me one more and then we can wrap it up. Humor. Humor. Humor is my favorite. It, it doesn't matter what situation you are in, humor can always get you out of it, good or bad. That's and true. again, I see it in meetings. I mean, when we're in intense negotiations at work, if I find a moment where we can just bring a little bit of levity to the situation, mm -hmm. it immediately calms everyone down and relaxes and everybody goes from that sort of tense this to the kind of like, okay, let's just take a break. And even when I'm on stage, if there are moments where things are going terribly awry, I make a joke out of it. Like, you know, I'll be in the middle of a, a sort of sale and someone will drop a glass in front of me. I'm like, look, this is going so well that people are breaking glasses. Yeah. What an incredible night this is. Yeah. You know? So it doesn't have to be humor. Humor just allows for a better relationship, in mm -hmm. my opinion. And especially if you're giving a speech, I mean, people love a good joke thrown in. What if the joke fails? Like a lot, of, a lot of people who are speaking coaches actually say don't throw in jokes because if they flop, then it's even more awkward. No, because then, you, then what you say is, because this happens to me all the time. Remember, I'm getting on stage at 11 o'clock at night. A lot of people have had a lot of wine. They've had a big yeah. steak dinner and they're just dead behind the eyes. 
and I'll go out there, I'll introduce myself and I'll make a joke. And then it, it totally flops. Like one person will laugh. So I'll say something like, Oh, I'm so glad that you didn't laugh because that was not meant to be funny. Okay. So I just, or I'll say to the one person who laughed, I'll be like, Oh, there's, there is still one person awake in here, which is great. And he laughed. So I guess this is the only person who's going to be bidding tonight. So you can always make something. You can flip it. Yeah. And then the crowd's like, oh, we should probably pay a little more attention right. because this poor girl's up here at 11 o'clock at night. Absolutely. So you just get a little bit, a little bit of sympathy too. But you also have a lot of experience again. So yeah. that kind of makes it easier and more, Absolutely. you know, more fluid. But I, I did want to touch upon this because I did find this very fascinating. Like, what is the process to even become an auctioneer? And let me be clear. You're not just an auctioneer. Mm-hmm. You also are the managing director. Yeah. So you have, like, you wear two hats. Distinctly yeah. different hats. Okay. Yeah. And you also wrote the book. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I just want to make sure it's not like you're just, like, you know, not even just. But no. people have usually, people are usually an auctioneer. They don't also run the entire yeah. business. But... Please tell us the process. Uh, so the process is a little bit like Survivor. You, I actually try out the charity auctioneers now. So we start in a room if it can be anywhere from 15 to 20 people. And they're self-selected. They come in knowing a little bit about it and wanting to learn more. What was their background before? They all work for Christie's. They so all, okay, they so all, you have to work for the company to be an auctioneer on behalf of Christie's. You can't just be someone who's always wanted to be an auctioneer and apply? Outside of, I mean, there are other people who do this, certainly, yeah. but if you want to work for, if you want to be an auctioneer for Christie's, you have to also work for the company. Really? Yes. So you don't hire outside people? No. Oh, that's a good to know. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so first of all, you work for Christie's or as Sotheby's. What? Like as anything, right? You could be a salesperson, a marketing. And frankly, you know, when I first started, actually, it was only senior executives who were allowed to do it. Wow. But by the but just by chance, three years into working there, they opened up the auditions for a larger group because a lot of the senior executives had to travel or they were older, so they had families. They couldn't do things on the weekends. I was 24. I didn't know anyone in New York City, so it just seemed like a great way wow, to fill my yeah. time. I don't like being home alone. I don't like being home, period. So <laughs> it was really fun for me to go out right. to these galas, even if I was a mediocre auctioneer. And so, um, yeah, they come into the classroom, and I sort of explain to them the process of it's usually a three- to four-day tryout, and we let people go over the course of those three or four days until we end up with usually about four because you want to be able to really train them, and then you need to start sending them out. What are you trying them out for? They come in the room. and They come you... in the room, and the first thing I do is I ask them to tell a story okay. to sort of see what they're like and their level of comfortability with being in front of a crowd. And you can pretty much tell. There's usually one person who's just very at ease. Maybe they've been a drama student, or they just don't mind being in front of people and talking, or they give a lot of presentations. Um, there's some people who just crumble. I mean, some people just leave at that point. They get up there. I'm like, tell me, tell me a two minute story, anything you want to know, but I want it to be within two minutes. So what I'm looking for is somebody who can get in and out of a story and wrap it up. And also someone who looks comfortable up there and has good hand motions. It allows for me to understand the people I'm going to be sort of cutting over the next couple of days. If they have nervous tics, Mm. like I, I flipped my hair a lot. That was my my thing. I would flip it back and forth, back and forth. But some people get very high in their voice. Mm. Some people just start shaking really bad. Like you can see their legs shaking. And these are people I know. I I work with them. Like, hi, we just talked in the hall two minutes ago. See death. People would rather die than be on stage. I'm telling you. Yes. So, um, so then after the first day, you can kind of tell the people who just need more public speaking experience. So I'll say to them, look, if this is really something you want to do, 
go to a public speaking class or just get yourself into a situation where you're talking in front of people a lot so that you feel more comfortable because this is not going to be for you. And so then the next day we start doing exercises where people are allowed to sell what we call lots, which is essentially mm -hmm. what you're selling. So, you know, a vacation home or a dinner with a private chef or a singing lesson with Lady Gaga. So I give them my old auctioneer books and I'm like, just get up there and sell. And I say to the class, this is the number that we're going to stop bidding. And we just sort of let it, let them go and see what they can say. And so the first couple of times they do it, they're very uncomfortable with it. But most of them have seen charity auctions or art auctions and kind of figure out how to command an audience to some degree. Right. And then over the next couple of days, people just start to pull away. I mean, there's some people who are just naturals. And then there are others who are good enough that I'm like, I feel like I could train that person up. And then there are others who are not good enough, but I feel like they have the breath. I, I feel like they have this sort of skeleton yeah. for it. They just need more time. Right. We're practice. Practice. And more so practice. it can be like a two-year process where they come to my office and I work with them on different lots and we practice and we film them basically the whole time so they can see their progress. And then usually by the last day, I, I have a good sense of who we can keep sending out. So how do you guys get the actual gifts that you're, you're, you're auctioning off? Is that through you guys? No. Or? So the charity brings sort of a list of different things that they think would be good for the auction, and we help them go through and reduce it. I always say that we only want about three to five live auction lots in a sale. Because you call them lots, not gifts. Lots, not yeah. gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know it's sort of auction terminology. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, because essentially you just don't want an audience that's already tired to have to sit through another hour of an auction, Absolutely. especially because a lot of them aren't going to bid. So I always say the beauty of an auction is if you keep it short and sweet, people have fun. You know, the, what I, the biggest compliment is when someone says, well, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. Well, a plus. <laughs> you get an exactly. A plus. Now I was going to ask, is there, are there certain um, trends that you see that right now things sell really well now that they weren't selling before? Mm -hmm. Or You definitely see it. I mean, right now it's all about the chefs. If you can get yes. a top chef to go to a private home, I mean, in the right crowd, I've sold that for $100,000. So, oh, I know. wow. It's crazy, but people love chefs. People do. My husband yeah. actually, at, a, at an auction, he bought a chef to come over and, and cook a, a meal, and yeah. it was exorbitantly expensive. Yes. Not 100000 or I would have, like, he would never come back into the house. But, <laughs> but still, like, it was expensive. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, it was that, that was like, and that was one of the things, the lots, I mm -hmm. guess, everyone was bidding on. Yes, you can right? tell. That and makes sense. Anything for children, any. Mm. Right. I just always say with a live auction package, you want it to be something that is truly priceless. Like, no, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you could not get it unless this charity had access to that celebrity or the chef or that home or that location or Absolutely. whatever it might be. All right. This is my last question. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, we'll come back again. Okay. Um, <laughs> what now, because the whole the podcast is called Habits and Hustle, mm -hmm. I want to know with your busy, crazy schedule, what are your habits that you do every single day to keep you on point? So without a doubt, the thing that I think is most important in terms of keeping yourself sane is to keep it in the positive. And you can do that throughout the day as many times as you want to do. I live in New York City. Things go wrong from the minute you walk outside of your apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, I get on the subway. People are screaming. They're, they're pushing. They're shoving. I miss the subway. And it's so easy to immediately get into that because if you want to be angry, there is no better city in the world right. than New York to be angry because everybody will allow it and just keep moving on. So I just have moments, you know, if I miss the subway by two seconds and it means I'm going to be a little late, I just try to stop for a moment when I can feel myself getting frustrated or angry or annoyed and think, okay, what was so bad about that? Mm -hmm. 
so I'm going to be a couple minutes late. Ultimately, what is so bad about that? And I really try to stop in that moment and not allow myself to spiral because it's way too easy to, to go into the negative and then your entire day is offset. Absolutely. You walk into the office in a bad mood, your negative energy goes into every single person you interface with. So how do you do that though? Is it like self-talk? Yeah. Is it self-talk? It's literally self-talk. And sometimes it's just putting on music, you know, putting in earbuds mm-hmm. and listening to a great song, I think is really helpful. Uh, sometimes if I, you know, leaving work and I'm just taking the day with me, I'll stop one stop early on the subway put in music and walk home so that by the time I get to my kids, I'm fresh right. and I'm ready to be mom. And I'm not, I'm not Lydia from Christie's. I'm like a hundred percent mom. Absolutely. And is there any other, any other tips or any other habits that you want to give us? Surround yourself with great people. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime I'm in a real low, even on the book tour, there were days after sort of day after day after day of travel. And I was feeling horrible mom guilt as we all do about not being with my kids for two days or three days or whatever it might be. I would reach out to my friends and because I surround myself with really good women, mm-hmm. the texts that would come back in, I mean, I would be sitting on a plane crying because I just felt like I was oh. being a bad mom. And then all of a sudden I was crying because I couldn't believe how incredible my friends were. That's so, a really nice feeling. Yeah. Surround yourself with the right people and just weed out the people who don't bring that energy. That's such a good point. Uh, how about in terms of what time you wake up in the morning? Do you exercise? What kind of exercise? Do you eat a certain food? Uh, Diet Coke and chocolate. Yeah, which is, I know. I was going to say, that's um, not so much about keeping, you know, leveling up, but okay. Um, that's, it's acceptable that's for today. Um, no, I, I wake up somewhere in the sort of 6.30 to 7 range. Mm-hmm. You know, I have three small children right. and two of them have to go to school. So we have to sort of get going. My husband and I, are, you know, my husband works too. So we're very much about you know, whoever is taking the two older kids to school that morning, the other person is fixing breakfast, getting the kids ready and, you know, being with our little one to make sure that she's alive and fed. Right, right, right. Um, and so makes dressed. Lunches? Who makes lunches? Uh, they eat at school, thankfully, oh. as of this year. Thank God. Oh, um, yeah. So much easier. But it's really like delegating that one person. The person who is walking out of the door with the kids is not also trying to get them ready. That person is really in charge of getting everything sort of food made and kids dressed and out of the door on time. Um, and then the other person has a little bit more time and then our nanny comes and our, our daughter stays with our nanny until she goes to school in the afternoon. Do you exercise? I do. I'm a runner. Just anytime I can. I never leave home without my shoes. So you just, so there's no real schedule. It's more spontaneous when you find the time. I try never to take more than two days off of exercise. So if I have to get up super early one morning or, you know, if it's a weekend, I'll say to my husband, like, let's go to the park. I'll run from the park. I'll come back. You can go for a run. So it doesn't look the way it used to when I was a six day a week runner. And I used to run marathons. I used to love running long distances. And now my schedule doesn't allow for that kind of running, but Anytime I travel, people are always like, oh, well, you know, I'm on business travel. I'm like, business travel is when I run every single day. Good. Because there's always a time. Absolutely. And then you don't, you always run outside though? Um, totally depends. Sometimes on a treadmill, sometimes outside. In the winter, because New York is obviously very cold. So we're- Yeah, you just layer up. It's actually yeah. really, there's something, I grew up in Louisiana, so I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but <laughs> there is something really invigorating about running outside with lots of layers on. I feel like your lungs get oh, wow. so cold. I, I don't know if you're saying it. that either. But... I know, it really is strange, but I do, I enjoy it. Is there any other tip, that's it, or any other habit that you want to... I mean, that's I just, good. You did, you did well. Yeah, I mean, don't, I mean, you don't, have to, like, really don't, don't struggle. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I will say one more thing. I hear people say all the time, you're so busy. You must be tired all the time. And I don't want people to think that I'm not at times tired, but I also want to live the life that I want to live. Mm-hmm. And that means just filling up every minute and getting as much as I can out of it. Absolutely. So sometimes I am tired, but most of the time I'm just really trying to enjoy what I'm doing and really live the life that I want to live so that, you know, if, if this, all of this ends tomorrow, I can look back and be like, 
what an extraordinary time. Yeah, I'm into that. Well, yeah. this has been a very fun, I however long this. it's been, an hour <laughs> or whatever it was. I really, really loved having you on this podcast. Um, everyone, the book is called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You by Lydia Finette. <laughs> yes, right? is it? So how do people find you if they want to know more about you, the book, what you're doing? So I have a website, which is www.lydiafinette.com, and then I am over Instagrammer. So feel free to follow me on Instagram. My mom always says it's such a blessing that Instagram came along because now she knows where I am every hour That's of the 100%. day. That's 100%. My mother says the same thing, actually. So follow along. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You too. Thank you for having me. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.